All right, you ready? Yep, let's do this thing. I got my energy up. Go. Okay. Oh, dude, I didn't realize we've already been recording for two minutes. Perfect. It was accident. I'm Dash, father of two adopted daughters and two biological sons between the ages of two and 13. And I'm Swy. I'm a year and a half into parenting, and it's way harder than I thought it would be. And you are now tuned into the sounds of Imperfect Dads, a parenting podcast. We're staked out in this little corner of the internet to create a community that has empathy for and camaraderie with other imperfect parents. A place where we can learn from other people how to become better parents. And where we can occasionally figure out how to be cooler parents. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. And thanks for those of you who have already given us good reviews. You the real MVPs. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we share items we found that make us think and or giggle. Thanks for listening to this episode, where we get to talk to John Thornton Jr. He's currently the co-pastor of Missions and Outreach at Ephesus Baptist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and a former youth pastor with helpful insights on teenagers, technology, and stress. Now let's make like a power hitter and knock this thing out. Play ball! Hey, Dash. Hey, Swy. How's it going today? Good, man. Finally getting a little warm weather this spring. Yes, spring has sprung in some parts of the country, and uh, Florida and Arizona, we just don't want to hear about it. I'm not sure that they have four seasons. I think it's just like hot summer and then medium summer. But it's a dry heat. I would take it. I would take it. Yeah, the problem with um, Kansas is people pretend like it has four seasons, but it really only has two seasons, uh, bone-chilling wind and sweat-butter summer. And that's pretty much it. That's the list. Yeah, I mean, the joke with Chicago is that the two seasons are uh, winter and road construction. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's always road construction even in winter, so basically it's just, you know hell the best part though about not winter isn't being warmer it's that i'm just really glad that the toddler can now just put on flip-flops and we don't have to get a jacket on him it's way easier to go outside now super fast (laughs) we've just been doing sweaters that way we don't have to take them off when he gets in his car seat oh that's good i miss the age where it was just blankets. We can't do that anymore. Yeah. Bummer. Hey, man. So uh, as you have been parenting these last couple of weeks, how have you been in touch with your imperfections as a dad? <laughs> well, I think largely this week has been pretty good, but there have been a couple of things that have been brought to my attention by other parents. Uh, that you're married my- to? <laughs> I am married to one of them, uh, but there are other parents too that, you know, we all fall victim to the like comparison game and uh, it's just kind of a struggle sometimes, but uh, my kid still doesn't really say any words. Like we can kind of imagine he's saying words, but uh, it's just hard when, you know, like we're talking to other parents and they're like, oh, my kid said, you know, such and such fancy word, which you know, to me, it doesn't really make sense because there's no way they would have picked that word up unless you were trying to teach them that word, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm realizing that, uh, 
just you know listening to podcasts where adults talk all day is probably not the best way to uh, practice word repetition you know being an educator as well as a parent yeah definitely getting some age appropriate stuff in there is pretty important I mean, the plus side is that my child is going to be well-versed in the coming 2020 primaries, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all of the sports and politics things that I'm listening to all day. I do think one good thing to remember at this age is that the changes happen so fast that eventually, you know, all of these kids kind of end up in the same boat anyway. I kind of think about how much of a difference it feels like um, a kid is, you know, when you have like a nine month old and your friend has a four or five month old and they just seem like two different species. Mm -hmm. But those two kids are like going to be in the same class someday by the time they get to school at age five. So, you know, it all smooth out a bit. Yeah, it's funny. I have, you know, my son has a cousin that's about six months younger and they're going to be in the same class too. Uh, but my son is in like the 78th percentile for length and his cousin is in the sixth percentile for length. So they, I mean, my son has like a solid seven inches (laughs) in, in six months on his cousin. So yeah. They would um, make a compelling buddy comedy with physical humor. Yeah. Yeah, It's definitely going to be a, uh, some sort of a sitcom situation at family holidays in the future. With uh, our toddler, as I think about like my imperfections as a parent um, and what it looks like to really like pay close attention to your kid and worry about stuff, I'm a little concerned that with kid number four now, the pendulum has maybe swung a little bit too far in the other direction, opposite of doting. Um, <laughs> so like raise yourself kid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, has reached peak toddler stage, which means everything is communicated with a sense of great urgency by him. There's been a lot of, uh, throwing of things. I think kind of to like test that out as a communication option. Mm. and you just kind of get these like big mood swings but then you add on to that he's also absorbing some of the characteristics of his older siblings and so from his third grade brother he's picked up an incessant singing of um various potty songs including the age-old classic diarrhea song and (laughs) from his teenage sister he's picked up a lot of i can only describe it as um kind of huffiness and so (laughs) when he gets frustrated the and um some various other i guess like teenage tantrumish type behaviors and so there's a lot going on, and a lot of times I look at him and I just think, I don't even know who you are anymore. <laughs> what happened to my sweet little child that didn't know how to talk back? Exactly, yeah. So enjoy that not talking thing while you can. But the problem <laughs> is, all the, most of these behaviors would have mortified me when I was 
the parent of one kid and it would have been like oh gosh buddy like you really just can't do that we have to stop and this idea that people would probably be judging me if my kid was acting that way and think that i wasn't a capable parent especially when i was younger and now like the whole name of the game is just sort of remain unaffected so that Mm -hmm. he gets no payoff from a lot of those behaviors um i'm a little concerned that it's coming across as look son i'm just here to keep you alive and use my cell phone as a device to record embarrassing things about you so that i can blackmail you into putting me in the good nursing home someday um (laughs) so i probably have to moderate a little bit somewhere between overly doting and completely disengaged yeah i hear that Hey, if you want to share an experience where you felt the reality of your imperfection as a dad, feel free to email us at imperfectdads at gmail.com or hashtag imperfectdads on Twitter. We'd love to hear your stories. This week's episode is brought to you by Squirrelier Kids, a new service for parents who have a hard time keeping their kids in check while out and about in public. Look, we get it. Sometimes you can't stop your kids from acting a fool. You can only hope to contain them. Or at least those were your only two options. This is where Squirrelier Kids comes in. No matter how wild your children might be in public, Squirrelier Kids can make them look like absolute angels. By rushing noisy, disobedient, and generally annoying children to your exact location, they will make you look like an amazing parent due to the magic of comparison parenting. Need to take your kids shopping? No problem. Squirrelier Kids can be at the store of your choice in no time flat, throwing tantrums over items they want and clearing entire shelves of cans onto the floor. Have a long flight? Squirrelier Kids has babies that can cry at altitude for hours on end. Tough time keeping your kids quiet at church? Nobody will notice after a Squirrelier Kid unleashes a profanity or six in the middle of the service. We all know it's impossible to be a perfect parent. Now, thanks to Squirrelier Kids, it can also be impossible for people to think you're the worst parent. Squirrelier Kids, for when you need someone else to drive the public nuts. So what's been your dad's traction lately? What's been keeping you entertained during nap time? I hit the jackpot last week, and after a years, plural, long search... I finally procured for free a 60-year-old refrigerator. Yeah, jackpot is right. Jackpot is right. <laughs> um, the thing what, about it what's is... What's so great, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to use it as a refrigerator. I am going to take out the motor and a number of the other implements, and I'm going to attempt to convert this refrigerator into a meat smoking apparatus. Mm. So as you know, um, I already am the owner of two meat smokers. I have uh, a smaller size, like 18 inch round one. And then I have a nine foot trailer smoker, not much in between. Um, But the thing about these old fridges is since they have metal interiors, they can take heat and not poison you, which is, a pretty key aspect of barbecue and because they're so insulated they can withstand pretty much any 
conditions known to humanity. There are a few message boards and sites I've seen where people have done conversions on these fridges. So I just want to try my hand on it. It's going to kind of be my version of the sports car that I tinker with in the garage, but it's going to be a antique kitchen appliance that I turn into something I can make delicious food on. Yeah. That sounds right up your alley. It's going to be a long process, but I'll make sure to keep you personally and the public at large updated on a regular basis. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have people calling in all the time. <laughs> check your check your progress. Indeed. What's uh, What's been going on with you, man? What have you been thinking about pondering and or tinkering with? Yeah. Uh, you know, I was cruising Netflix the other day. And I saw that, I don't know if it's been out for a long time or whatever, but I saw Doomsday Preppers was being uh, listed among the offerings on Netflix. And so I started watching. And have you ever have you ever seen the show Doomsday Preppers? I think it was on like uh, National Geographic. No, are they TV? prepping for a specific Doomsday or does everybody kind of have their own boutique Doomsday that they're concerned about? Okay, so... Yeah, I'll explain the show a little bit, but then I want to talk about what's really interesting to me. Um, <laughs> so each show profiles one or two uh, preppers, and each of them, you know, has like a specific geographic setting, uh, you know, like a specific background, and they've all got like a particular doomsday scenario in their mind. So some of them, it's uh, you know, I am anticipating a dirty bomb attack in the city center mm. of the city that I live in. I am anticipating a huge earthquake where, you know, like the whole continent is torn in two and the Mississippi River becomes hundreds of miles across, that kind of stuff. So there's anticipating a Sharknado. <laughs> yeah, all you need for a Sharknado is a chainsaw. I feel okay. like that has been dispelled. Because once the Sharknado falls from the sky and devours you, you just cut yourself out from the inside. Yeah, neat. Yeah. That's a documentary, by the way. <laughs> the Sharknado. <laughs> okay, so Doomsday Preppers. So they've all got these, you know, bizarre scenarios in their head. And they're all, uh, you know, really anticipate. I mean, some of them have, like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff some of them are like turning their homes into fortresses some of them get their kids out with like uh you know they fill super soakers with pepper spray and they do like tactical training <laughs> with their eight-year-olds out in the front lawn i mean some of it is just like the most bizarre stuff but i think what's it the show can almost be viewed as like a parody of itself in that uh, occasionally it just reveals how not only how absurd the scenario is, but how, uh, really unprepared they are for anything except this specific scenario. Uh, I mean, to the point that like all it would take was just like running into one other person trying to escape this city of 3 million people. And your whole plan is just, you know, shot. <laughs> It's what I hear a, you saying just is a that wild show. Each person is so specific with their preparations that perhaps they all need to like get together in a big commune so that they will have a <laughs> diversified portfolio of preparations and they can rely on each other. 
the experts at Practical Preppers who rate each participant at the end of their episode would probably uh, give you extra intangible points for your creativity and your spirit of camaraderie. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what I am. I'm here for the people. Uh, there's there's no vision for any sort of like cooperation or, you know, imagining that we can survive, uh, you know, sustain society. Which, I mean, it provides a good challenge for us all, which is to be the doomsday prepper you want to see in the apocalypse. And if we can all do that, then it should smooth things out in the end. John Thornton Jr. is a pastor, writer, community organizer, dedicated Dallas Mavs fan, and a niche Twitter minor celebrity. He's written several really good articles, which we will link to in the show notes, but he really got our attention with an article describing his experiences working with teenagers in his youth group and the daily anxiety they are facing. So we are thrilled to have him share some insights with us all. Hey, John, thanks for uh, joining us tonight for a few minutes. We were fortunate enough to find an evening where your beloved Dallas Mavericks have a day off. Oh man, yeah. After <laughs> like uh, whipping up on the uh, on the Golden State Warriors, it was unbelievable. It was <laughs> incredible. As you stand in between one era of Dallas Mavericks basketball and on the precipice of another, do you have any particular Dirk moments that uh, really stand out to you? Oh, wow. This is uh, not where I expected this interview to go. I thought we were just going to talk <laughs> about kids. But uh, if we're talking about about Dirk, uh, yeah, we're going to have about an hour of uh, <laughs> Dirk stories. No, um, so there's two. One, I remember uh, driving home from church when I was 11 with my dad and asking who the Dallas Mavericks had drafted. And he said, I don't know, some German guy. And my dad's like a sports guy. Like, he was paying attention. Like, this is how, like, he knew everything that happened in Dallas sports. And that's, like, how inconsequential Dirk was. Uh, he was like, yeah, just some German guy. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, and then uh, my dad and I went to the first Dallas Mavericks finals game in 2006. And we won that game, and then we later lost the finals uh, in heartbreaking fashion. So to then get to, like, 2011, where Dirk won the, the title. I mean, the Mavs won the title. It was an amazing team. And then, uh, and then to get to watch him just kind of ride out his career has been, it's been so fun. It's, it's amazing. Hey John, I've been uh, I've been following your writing for a while now, and I've learned quite a bit from your exploits, uh, particularly in youth pastoring. Uh, you recently wrote an article that talks specifically about why teenagers are consumed with anxiety and depression. You know, something that millennials are also struggling with in epidemic proportions. I'd love to start just by asking: Is the cause our collective addiction to smartphones? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> but but. <laughs> But not in the way that, I, at least in my experience working with youth, that we think about it, right? Like, um, 
most of the time, it seemed to me that the the way people talked about kids and like smartphones and screen time and all this stuff was it like I was like getting burned out because they're like too connected to their friends and they're too much on, they're on Instagram too much that like uh, and and I don't know so okay like I came to see some of these things as a youth pastor of about 13 to 15 kids at a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I just started asking them, like, what are their lives like? And as far as the phones go, like, it wasn't that they were on them all the time to, like, talk to their friends. It was that they were getting, like, they were getting push notifications for their grades. And so now they're, like, worried about their, I mean, they were constantly worried about their grades. Because their grades, their uh, the classes they were taking, their like volunteer hours, all this stuff added up to their where they would get into college and then where they would go with their career, and like that was crazy. So it was their phones, but not usually in the way of like oh they're just checking Facebook, Instagram. Uh, uh, but it was more about uh, like an, an applied pressure that I was very unaware of. Uh, yeah, so yeah. almost like a, a source of intrusion in their lives, not a you know not an escape. Totally, yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, right. I mean, like, imagine like if everything you did wrong at your job just immediately showed up here in your phone, which is actually not that hard for. A lot of people to imagine <laughs> but then also imagine that happens in year 14 <laughs> like and every little uh assignment like every grade was was pushed to their phones that was it was a moment when i was talking to the kids i worked with at, in the youth group that uh yeah it was really jarring and, and, and eye-opening that these kids are like this is their lives and they don't know how to it's not that they don't know how to turn it off like why why would you turn it off they have to think about this stuff yeah it's an interesting question to pose and maybe part of the answer has to do with what adults model for them i know that i've always been struck when i just turn notifications off of an app how then infrequently I use it and I can still like go back to my email and check it on a regular basis. But if those push notifications aren't coming through, then like I'm in a much better place. So there's the technology, but then also what role do the adults have the ones who are like actually in their lives in regard to modeling healthy habits? I, I didn't know how to tell them because it was so normalized, right? Like that you have to worry about your grades. You have to worry about your career and the way that your grades sort of like function within all of that. How, how do you tell them to turn off the notifications? Because yeah. they don't know anything different. 
And especially if you add on the, you know, the idea that their parents are probably getting the same notifications about their grades, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, what is, this is just totally normal at this point. I don't know. It, it like, immunitizes something, right? Like, it makes it so completely, like, in their face uh, that they can't, they can't get out of it. As you were working with kids not within the realm of their academic world, what were some of the effects then that you were seeing on them in these social settings? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, so they, uh, one of the coolest things like that I think we did as a youth group and that they were so drawn to was we had this. So I was working at this church that was very much based. It was a based off like a traditional model of like a downtown first Baptist church. And uh, so we had like Wednesday night meal, you know, Wednesday night programming, all that stuff. And I just said like, hey, okay, so like if you guys want to come up here, some of y'all have to drive past the church for an hour to go home, or not an hour, but you have to drive home for 30 minutes and then be there for an hour and then you come back up to the church like 30 minutes later. Like, just come here. We've got, like, we recently renovated our our church library and into, like, a common space, is what we called it. And, and it had, like, couches, and just, it was where, like, people just were. So I was like, okay, y'all just come up here. And, like, I'm just going to be there. Some of y'all will be here other adult like people will be around but like you can just be here and it was pretty incredible to see these like 6th to 12th graders they would just walk in I was just a big open space it was usually me like one or two other adults that for whatever reason just happened to be around the church uh, and and to see them, like, okay, so no one's here to make you do homework. Like, this isn't study hall. No one's here to make you hang out with people in a way, like, force you into a conversation. Like, if you actually just want to go sit in the corner and play on your phone or uh, read a book or just do your homework, you can do that. Uh, and, like, it kind of worked. Like they all really said it was, they all said it was a space that they not had otherwise. Like that just didn't exist anywhere else in their, in their lives. But it wasn't, it wasn't just like, oh, I can just go home and go to my room, but like a kind of common space where no one is telling me what to do, but I'm also kind of, I'm also safe here. And I can, I can figure out how to be with people. Uh, that was like a pretty cool thing. So within the context of that space, say we have kids who are at our house because they're friends with our kids. Say that we um, work or volunteer in some capacity where there are young people around. What are some of the markers for kids of those spaces where they can feel free from some of those pressures? One of the things I, I took really 
I took to heart and that I, I brought into what I do as a minister, but as a particularly as a youth minister, is that I think kids in especially middle school and high school they want to be taken seriously without added pressure because everything they do is is there's a lot of pressure it's 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 the test right it's um it's the volunteer hours it's the you, uh and so every time someone like takes them seriously it's with some like goal or some end game that they have to achieve but no one can just like take them seriously and be like oh no that that actually sounds really hard uh so i think that's one thing take, taking kids seriously without adding pressure uh but then also giving them like occasions for for joy or fun that's not advertising because the other thing is like uh you, you, like i worked in an elementary school the first year after I graduated college, I, I graduated Baylor in uh, 2009 and I uh, worked in elementary school for a year after. And like we had this big pep rally about the, uh, the standardized test. What? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. The entire thing was about the test. I, mean, I worked at this like, well, I mean, super poor elementary school, right? Like, I mean, it was, and, and I remember, yeah, I don't know why this, like, we had, like, a week of, like, pep rallies about the standardized test, which I think those kids, like, probably know is, is like, they can see through it, right? Like, at the very least, they, like, do this big pep rally and it doesn't matter. Like, what, I mean, they, they do that and then they do the test and, like, uh, and so, to, yeah, so, so the way I've, I put it is to be taken seriously with but what like I think a lot of kids want maybe all of us but especially kids want is uh, to be taken seriously without added pressure and given occasions for joy uh, without advertising or sales which is what I felt in these in the elementary school that I worked at yeah so almost a place to uh, to not have to optimize their future Totally. Yeah. I mean, like, like, yeah, these kids are being asked to, to think about like, what does they want to do when they grow up? And that's what, I mean, what a horrible thing to think about. Just because who knows? <laughs> I'm hoping that by the time I hit, you know, 50 or so, I'll figure out what I want to do when I grow up. It does seem like some of that pressure as much as we give parents a hard time for pressuring their kids or schools a hard time for pressuring kids, some of it does seem a bit like a loving survival mechanism because people do want their kids to succeed in life or at the very least to have some level of, of comfort or opportunity or doors open to them. Um, you've written before about how we are preparing kids for a world that doesn't exist anymore. What kind of world should we be preparing kids for? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about like what kind of world we would want to prepare kids today to live in. 
uh, because, because I can't envision it. And, and the times I try to envision it, it's really, really bad. Uh, and that's, that's terrifying. Uh, it, it, it's a real problem, right? Like, we know that things right now aren't tenable. We can't keep doing this. Like, th- this is not going to work. Whether it's climate change, inequality, poverty, instability. Like, every family. I, like, I don't know any family that has kids that are, like, like they're all, they're all, like, paycheck to paycheck. It's like one thing could, could throw things off. So, um, so you've got that. Yeah, I mean, I I could tell you, like, the futures that I imagine uh, that would be better than what we're doing. But I I, I don't know what... (laughs) But your outlook is much more dystopian. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't know if it's just... I mean, anytime I look into the dystopia, I get really bummed out. So I just can't do it. So I'm I'm just like a happy-go-lucky guy. I loved, like, I loved the youth group I got to create, the church I was at in Winston, and I think there's the response to, you know, the the Fox piece that that y'all talked about was was really interesting because it was I got I got, I got all sorts of responses from parents, from teachers, from from students that were like, yeah, this is our life, like we're we have to figure out how to do something different. But but what that looks like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, it it but it has it can't be individual. It can't just be like so. What should parents do? What should teachers do? Which is a question I've been asked all, uh, in response to these things. Like these are collective problems. They require collective solutions. And individually, it, we're just trying to adjust. Yeah, so, I mean, you talk about, like, uh, you know, the a global societal level rather than individual consumer choices, right? Yeah, and I one of the big decisions that parents have to navigate is on what level can we reasonably affect change? Like, is that on a community-wide level? Is that on a city-wide level? Do we simply try to affect change within some other social structure, be it religious or otherwise, that we are a part of? Or do we, like, try to change the world? And depending on context, I think that is a little bit different. Like, where Ben is at in Chicago, for him to affect community-wide or city-wide change is going to look different from me where I'm in a town of 2,500 people. Um, So maybe that's part of the thought process that parents have to kind of navigate and really discern is on what levels can I contribute to a better future for my kid or maybe even a better now. So John, some of your work has used the dichotomy of uh, retributive views versus redemptive views uh, and I'm thinking particularly of that article you wrote for Plow about uh, debt can you maybe use that framework to uh, unpack those two views and their differences but then also talk about how we can approach these problems and this generation with 
empathy and understanding rather than a judgmentalism toward their specific consumer choices or habits. Yeah, it's really, that's, that's a good way to maybe frame this, right? Like, um, and I, I should say, like, I, I, um, that whole framework is from Adam Kotzko, who I, I cite in the, the piece that I think you're going to link in the, there's one way of like thinking about this and, and, and I would be interested to hear y'all's response about this, like with regards to what it's like to raise a kid because our kids or children, children, their kids, goats have kids. You have children. Um, <laughs> it's a, a great, like Malcolm X quote. Um, I wrote this piece about like about student debt and the ways of framing it and understanding it. And, there's one way of framing it and understanding it that is uh, it, it, it retributive. That like it, uh, said that it's like, yeah, look, you should have gone to this school or the other. Like that was, you know, the, the, that was your choice. And by virtue of the fact that you went to this school and that they charged this much money, like now you have this much debt and that's your that's your deal. And we should, we, we being like a church or, I mean, just anybody, like none of us owe you anything. Church, society, government, whatever. We shouldn't cancel your debt. We shouldn't, like you now have it. Yeah. You made this choice. Now you have to deal with the consequences. Totally. Yeah. That's like, that's the, that's the way of understanding. Uh, and like, okay. So that's like one way of, dealing with this um the other way of dealing with it is okay but it actually seems like you made this choice but we want to help you and 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 these aren't like uh mutually exclusive the other uh, the other way though is is as you said the redemptive it's like we want to help you get out of this and how do we help you get out of this well we help you by making better decisions in the future and uh, and we can do that. So like you you've just accumulated all this debt, and so you've got like so let's, let's think about it like in terms of you know raising a kid, right? Like like okay, so like I don't want to be this like retributive that like raises a kid and is like ah well you decided to go to this school that had a great program that had like that you wanted to go to, that your friends were going to, that just, made, like, it all made sense. Like, I, I was like, I can't even, I, I have no idea why I went to Baylor. If you get out of that, and you, like, you let go of all of it, and then you get to this, and you're like, but you can also pay off your debt. So now, like, the way you pay off your debt is you make decisions going forward that save you a little bit of money here and there. And this is the uh, the redemptive view that you brought up, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, so look, we're not going to hold it over you that you decided to go to this university or this divinity school or this uh, graduate program or the, like you were just doing the best you could. You didn't know, but now, now you know, and now you have some amount of debt that you've got to pay off, and the way you pay it off is by making these very little decisions about, you know, eating out, uh, like, whether or not you, like, 
get a beer with dinner or you don't like like all these little things and you know you can you can uh, work your way back and and the way I put it in the the piece that you mentioned and the, the plow piece is uh, I always I always goof it up when I try to say it aloud but it's that you um, that forty thousand the one decision that results in forty thousand dollars in debt can be made up for by forty thousand dollars or forty thousand decisions that results in one dollar extra does that make sense or is that like yeah like yeah. like once you've gone into debt now you can make up for it by all by foregoing the starbucks coffee or the it's like and all of it just is like it's it's just it it's just such a depraved way of looking at one another it's a depraved way of looking at family at looking at like what education is for at how we ought to be with one another. Um, uh, Yeah. It it reduces everything that it seems like we're supposed to do together to this kind of calculus. That's, that that's just awful. How do we approach these consumer choices in a way that can build, you know, empathy and understanding and solidarity Rather than a, uh, you know, judgmentalism toward, you know, a, a particular choice that was was given to a seventeen-year-old that's you know a full ten years away from a fully developed prefrontal cortex, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, no, uh, like how, do think, we, uh, how do we do uh, that? So, like uh, Adam Kotzko, I don't know if you don't follow him on hmm. uh, on on Twitter, but he, he's he's really great. Um, and, uh, yeah, he had this tweet that like went, uh, like went viral several years ago that was like, you know, uh, we asked these 18 year olds to take out thousands of dollars of loans, uh, when six months ago they had to ask to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, literally you think about like a high school, like, uh, this idea that like. Oh, all of a sudden, you know, you have your 18th birthday and now you're capable of understanding like where your career, like within four years, you have to figure out where your career ought to go. Uh, and also you should take out, uh, you know, well, I mean, the average is what? $35,000 in loans. Yeah. It's yeah, something it's ridiculous. ridiculous. And... Yeah. It's just quite like, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the average, like it's crazy. Um, and there's a, I mean, there's a really, I mean, it's, I'd say great, like it's not good, but there's a, there's like a paper, uh, that, uh, study where they found that like, you know, college degrees, they still provide the bump that they used to in terms of, uh, wages and salary. But, uh, the only reason they do that is because like wages and salaries for, having a college degree have stayed the same and for not having a college degree have gone way down. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's, it's, it's not like a, it, you're not moving up. You're just holding on. Yeah. You're uh, avoiding bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Yeah. I mean like, yeah. And so, um, I, I mean, one of the things I really struggled with and that I, I would struggle with, talking to 
uh, particularly like the parents of kids in the, the youth group that I worked with is like, I don't, it's, it's obviously better on an individual level for a, a kid to go to college and to prepare a kid to go to college. But what's, it, it, but it's not readily apparent to me that like, I mean, or I should say, like, it's better for them to go to college in terms of wages, right? Like, in terms of the actual money they will make, the kind of jobs they can get, like, that's like better. And and, but, I mean, that's better on like an individual level. But I don't know the kind of institutions that I would direct them towards that would be better. Uh, for for everyone for or for most of them like mo- like I don't know what institution I would push kids towards that would be better for them uh, for like most high school graduates does that make sense or is yeah that sound- like yeah uh, and it's it's it's, I, I, it's a real conundrum it's one that I'm like not sure what y- y'all are gonna do as parents. Thank you for the vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think I, I think people will get it figured. I mean, we'll get it figured out. But I, I'm grateful to not have to, to deal with it myself. The language of career and what it means to be a, a working person in a um, <laughs> like a bougie like middle class upper middle class office. I don't, this this is a capitalist, like has become like that language has integrated so far down to where I had a middle schooler in the year I worked in say that you have to have a good work life balance. (laughs) Right. It's not great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <that's not> much... <laughs> um the uh so I mean so that's that's I mean that's one thing. Um <laughs> the uh yeah, the w- the way that like kids that I've worked with and and as I've like kind of delved into the like broader uh, socio-political economic structure of like what things look like for kids um, is is that like yeah it is all about career and like that's all, that, that they have to think about that from such an early age um, and. And and yeah, the, so the book Kids These Days that I, that I reviewed for for Commonweal, um, which I, I when I I read that book with a group of young adults, and and young adults is like church terms for uh, twenty and thirty year olds. As I get older, I just hope that all that young adults will like encompass forty and fifty. Like, yeah. Yeah. whatever I am and younger. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me, me, me down, 
me like 18 year olds to me is the young adults at this church uh but i i read this book kids these days that like uh like i said i, I reviewed for for common wheel and um and it was very fascinating so I, i'm 32 and then like uh we had some this woman who was uh visiting church and later joined who was 24 at the time we were reading the book and they were like i didn't grow up in high school with this like heavily uh this heavy emphasis on career this heavy emphasis on thinking through like what it is i'm going to do and like how i'm going to make this much money um and there, there, there was a, a shift somewhere in there. And I think some of it was like uh, George W. Bush with like the No Child Left Behind, but then also Obama with like, I forget what his was, but it was like all about competition. And uh, it has completely filtered its way down uh, to, to these, to like kids, to kids these days, to like, middle and high school students and and it was very it it is very bizarre to see like what it looks like to conceive of your yeah to conceive of your middle school grades and to be a high schooler and to volunteer somewhere like a non-profit but to think of both of those things in terms of where you're going to get into college and then, like, what that will mean for how much money you make in order to be okay. Yeah. Well, I, well that's I, crazy, right? Like, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, in, in Chicago, we have, like, a, a kind of a tiered high school system, too. So you've got the selective enrollment ones. So everybody takes a test in eighth grade, and, you know, the top whatever percent gets into the best schools. And it really does, I mean, in Chicago, there's huge differences between, you know, the, the top few and the rest in, and then you get down into the neighborhood schools, which are, you know, oftentimes just, just incredibly, uh, underfunded and understaffed and, and just, uh, just in, in real difficult straits. Uh, so you, you get like this huge spectrum of, uh, you know, where you could go, um, based on, you know, your test in <laughs> eighth grade. So you've got, you've got eighth graders having like full on identity crises and panic attacks based on a it's, test. That they're supposed to worry to about as an eighth grader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like forget college, man. It's like, it's going on earlier than that. It's, uh, it's to get into a different high school. Yeah. What what seventh grader doesn't deserve like what seventh grader deserves a better high school than another seventh grader? Yeah. Like what what, what could they possibly have done? What like they, no they all deserve the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a, yeah. Like, yeah. That's that's where it gets so weird. But it but it doesn't uh, it doesn't show up like that it it shows up in this way of like rewarding competition of rewarding choices and reward like it, yeah it 
uh, it's but it's it's maddening as you can tell that I'm getting like really fired up and like I don't even I have like I've no skin in this game. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> speaking in all caps right now, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you worked in a social institution in a church, um, but in a part of that church in youth ministry that a lot of times has to figure out the balance between character development for students and then also just like the recreational entertainment value. What challenges did you find, especially in regard to holding students' attention um, when they have attention grabbers on them 24-7? So, so sometimes I, I I didn't try to compete. Like I'm not gonna be more like entertaining than like yeah than Instagram or like your phone or whatever. Like that's a, like you know I just assume you you can find like really good content. You're just gonna take the L on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to hope you don't follow me on Twitter. <laughs> um, but, like, I mean, yeah, most of it was, like, okay, so, like, what would I have to do? Not I. Like, what would we have to be as a group? You just, like, don't want to pick your phone up. And actually, I mean, what are the ways that, uh, like, we can be together we as like a youth group in a church um, and as friends that like, or as a family. <laughs> yeah. Or as a family. Yeah. Or as a family that like, hmm. you don't want to pick your phone up and look, I like I'll pick my phone up all the time when I'm with my family. It was a, it was a real temptation when I'm with the kids, like with the youth group, like it, um, but like, wh- what could we be doing? And, and what, that was fascinating uh, to me was like, I heard from a lot of people working with kids. It was like, ah, it's so hard to like get them off their phones. And again, I, this was like a youth group of like 13 kids. So I don't want to say this is like, you know, leads one youth retreat and <laughs> knows what's going on. Uh, but also... I think this is true of those of us that are not 13, 14, 15, uh, that like when we have something we're committed to, we don't want to pull our phones up. We don't want to like when there's actually something there, um, to, to, to do something about or to be with or, like people to be with, like, we don't want to be on our phones. Um, yeah, so it's like it's not about entertaining and grabbing attention. It's about uh, like creating value in the content, right? I don't know though. Like, if societally and generationally there are signs of addiction with how we use technology, then like there is a compulsive piece of that. Like, there is something culturally that we have to sort out because. By nature, we would be going back to technology, even if there was something of value in our presence that would be better to pursue. Yeah. So it's just about, I mean, like, give people something else 
worthwhile to pursue. Uh, like, I mean, that's that's of more value than being on your phone. Uh, give give them a like, give them a protest. Give them a like a a pursuit that's worth more. Uh, but but, and I I think kids people want something more than what we've got right now. That seems just completely obvious, right? Like, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna go for that on their phones if that's the easiest place to find it. But if it's not, I mean, that's a really cool thing. Like, and I, I'm really interested in what that thing is. Like, what is the thing that's that's really cool and interesting and um, provides for us in the ways that we we don't have otherwise that we can't just get on our phones. Uh, but, I, but I, I'm, I'm, I, I refuse to be resigned to the idea that like they'll, uh, people just go to their phones and, and especially kids. Like I, I think they'll just, I, I, I think they want something more. I think we want something more. Uh, and I, I I'm interested in what that is, and I, I don't know what it looks like, uh, but I'm a, I'm a pastor because of it, and yeah, I don't know, yeah. I, I, but, I, but I also don't know how to, how to articulate that for families or for, like, I mean, for y'all's, like, for the podcast, like, what, like, for, I, I don't know what that looks like. Well, to me, well, the, to me the, the conundrum, conundrum kind, kind of, of reminds, reminds me of, me. Uh, like, Boudreaux, right, the simulation, uh, in that. Uh, you know, we're maybe we're of a generation that we were raised with a taste of the real. And so we recognize the difference between the real and the simulation. Uh, the real being like authentic in-person community and the simulation being social media or, or something that like, uh, you know, kind of represents community, but often fails in the like authenticity of it. So you get, you know, we have had a taste of the real and so we're able to tell the difference. Whereas, uh, I mean, kids, a, a kid that has never had the taste of the real and has only been raised on the simulation, like how do we, maybe this is way too philosophical for this uh, podcast, but, uh, you know, like how do we, how do we reinstitute the primacy of the real as opposed to the simulation. One of the things I think about a lot is like, how are these kids going to understand money? Mm. Well, because that's how I think about everything. Like, how are people going to understand? Like, how, how do we understand money? And like, I mostly just want people that don't have enough money to pay for things that they need to have enough money to pay for things they need. And like, but like, so to your point in terms of the transition from uh you know kind of one world to the next like so i remember my parents writing checks i remember them paying for things in cash but like uh my friends kids have no idea like they won't know what cash is right like like they literally just like they they will not understand how to write a check. 
Yeah. It, w- it will be t- like I bare I can barely write a check to my landlord. <laughs> Dude, we we use PayPal with our landlord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a it's a real struggle to get that figured out. And like, do I do cursive? Like, is that <laughs> like eight minute? Like, I don't even know how cursive works anymore. Um, <laughs> and like, they're not going to have any idea of how that works. And so the way that money moves is going to be so much faster. And, and, and uh, yeah, it, it, they're just gonna, not going to have any idea. And they're going to learn that they do or don't get scholarships to college. They're all going to be in debt. Like every, like all, like all your kids are going to be in debt, right? Like, yeah, like I, I, yeah, actually now we should just transition the podcast. To, I just want to know what it's like that you're like, <laughs> what would what, it be like raising these little indebtors? Like, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, that's gonna, that's so bizarre. Um, and it's, it's a totally different world. Uh, and I, I, I don't, I do not know what to do with it as a, a pastor, particularly one, as one who like, I care about this stuff. And I, I, I've worked with kids that are on the brink of having to deal with it, and that like are and in like I'm like I'm, I'm a pastor to the parents that are having to figure out like what they're gonna do with all of this, and I I don't know how to put it in any uh, simpler way than that. John, um, we could take this back to where it all started. Are you familiar with Mavs Man? Oh, yeah, I know Mavs Man. <laughs> Mavs Man, for those in the listening audience who don't know, is one of the mascots for the Dallas Mavericks basketball team. He has a basketball head and basketball skin tones, and he dunks off of a trampoline. And so my question for you, John, is who has been historically the better dunker, Mavs man or Vince Carter? Oh, I mean, Vince, 100%. Vince is great. And also Mavs man is very creepy. It looks like <laughs> uh, it looks like some sort of uh, situation where like a... Uh, it it's like, like an like Ichabod a, basketball. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like a total like a like a Marvel uh like like the worst Marvel hero. <laughs> like, like like someone fell into a vat of like uh yeah, just like nuclear waste and then someone accidentally dropped a basketball <laughs> in and then a guy fell in. Like a five foot nine guy fell in that <laughs> had like massive calves. And he and then he came out as, as the madman. <laughs> awesome. Well, moving ahead, <laughs> where can people find you online to see what you're writing and also get all of your Dallas Mavericks hot takes? Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, John Thornton Jr., co-pastor at Ephesus Baptist Church uh, in Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, we are, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of figuring this stuff out. We're, uh, we're about to take some time off, uh, in terms of, uh, regular worship. And then we're going to relaunch on Labor Day weekend. 
uh, as Jubilee Baptist. And so it's a Ephesus Baptist is a church that was founded in 1891. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna worship. We're gonna gather together for, uh, food and eating together. We're gonna struggle for justice and we're gonna pay off people's debts. So we're gonna pay off about thirty-five to $40,000 people's debts in the next year. And then, uh, yeah, you know, we'll have Sunday school if that's what people want to. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for sharing your time with us, John. Uh, yeah, it's great. Um, we'll, uh, we'll do it again. Yeah. Doing, uh, really doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still doing it again. <laughs> what did we learn today, Swy? Man, I learned about. Uh, how pervasive the technological intrusion is into our lives. Uh, you know, balancing convenience and like the access that we imagine that we need versus being present. Uh, how, you know, the kids were having their grades pushed to their phone at any moment. So they're, you know, constantly living on edge. Uh, it's not, not really about convenience at that point. It becomes like this really, uh, anxiety-inducing experience. What about you, man? I learned that kids are under a lot of pressure these days, and so it's probably good for us to show them a bit of empathy. Also, probably good for us to think about the type of world that we are creating for them to be adults in in the future and how we can prepare them to do well in that world. Being a new independent podcast is tough in that you need to have a certain level of engagement to get more attention from search engines and apps. If you like what you hear, you can help us tremendously by going on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts and giving us a rating. It really helps. Rating us on Yelp does not help, but if you do decide to go that route, please make sure to emphasize that we are delicious and provide courteous service. Thanks so much to The Passion Hi-Fi for all of the music on this episode. Check out thepassionhi-fi.com to hear the selection of beats and instrumentals he has available for free and for sale. Thanks for listening. And thanks for not dragging us on Twitter. Catch you on the flip. What do you call a droid that takes the long way around? R2-D2. No. R2-D2-er. <laughs> Oh boy. I